It's Aspen Ideas To Go, the podcast that brings you compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. About 15 years ago, Adam Grant began work at one of his first jobs. He was in charge of hiring. Grant, who's now a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School, decided to hire his roommates and friends. He told a crowd at the Aspen Ideas Festival that one of his friends fell behind on a deadline. Eventually it got so bad that a senior leader in the organization walked up to his desk, started screaming at him and said, if you don't get your act together, you're going to be fired. And I watched this happen, so I had a choice to make. Do I stay silent or do I speak up? And I'd known all my life what I had done. I had been the person who stayed silent. I was the ultimate conformist. Growing up in elementary school, I got called to the principal's office. I found out I was not in trouble, and I still cried. <laughs> that is not a joke. <laughs> After that, I followed not only all the rules, but even the rules that didn't exist, just in case somebody made them, to make sure that I would not get in trouble. And I was very careful to respect my elders, to make sure that I was listening to authority, and I was afraid of rocking the boat. But in this situation, I felt like I'd a, I had a responsibility to actually do something. He looked around the organization and found the person he knew would have his back, his boss's boss. So it took me a whole day to work up the courage to go to her office and speak up. And finally, I open the door and I say, you know, I, I've had a really hard time deciding to do this, but I've got to tell you, this happened. I think not only is it a horrible injustice, but I'm worried that this guy is going to quit. And if you think we're behind on a deadline now, just wait until he's not working anymore. Deep breath. Nothing bad happened. Then I'm getting dragged by my ear down the hallway. My boss's boss opens a door, throws me into a dark room. I'm completely disoriented. The light goes on. I have no idea where I am. I've never been in this room in my entire life. I am standing smack in the middle of the women's bathroom. My boss's boss proceeds to tell me that if I ever speak up out of turn again, I'm going to be fired too. After that experience, he made a vow to study how to create organizations where speaking up is encouraged and silence is discouraged, where creativity is championed and methods on how to communicate novel ideas are explored. His talk is based on his best-selling book, Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World. It's entertaining and interactive with the audience. He begins by explaining that he now examines the people unlike him, the nonconformists, the rule breakers, the people who enjoy standing out and speaking up. He talks about this group on stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival. I wanted to know how we could all be a little bit more like them. So if you're somebody like me who's constantly following the rules, right? how can you get comfortable speaking up? And more importantly, how can you do that effectively? For leaders, how do you create organizations where people are actually able to challenge authority and bring dissent? And for parents, how do you raise creative children? And I spent a lot of the first part of that, that body of research trying to figure out what creative people do differently from the rest of us. I was stunned to discover that the most original people procrastinate more than their peers. I also found out that they feel just as much doubt and fear as the rest of us, that they don't like taking risks, and they actually have more bad ideas than everybody else. And that all was fascinating. That's not what I want to talk about today. What I want to talk about today is what happens after you have an idea. So I don't think the world suffers from a lack of creative ideas. I think it suffers from a lack of people who are willing to champion them and a lack of knowledge about how to do that effectively. So I wanted to give you a top 10 list today of the most important steps that you could take if you wanted to drive more original ideas in the world. Now, sadly, I could only think of five, so this is going to be a top five list. 
Are you ready? So the first thing that I learned is idea selection is a critical skill. And originals are people who end up betting on the right ideas. The coolest data that I've come across on this comes from a former student, Justin Berg, who spent a couple years at Wharton trying to study circus artists. And he got all these performers who were trying to make it into Cirque du Soleil to submit their videos. And then he got audience members to watch them, rate them, even donate their own money to them. And he wanted to know who could predict which of these videos would really take off with audiences. Right? All the videos are pretty novel. The question is, which of these novel ideas will actually turn into successes? So the first thing he does is he has artists rate their own videos. And they are terrible forecasters of their own ideas' success. On average, when they take 10 different videos, they rank their own video two spots too high because they've fallen in love with their own work. And I know no one in this room has ever done that before. But then Justin wants to know, well, if people can't judge their own ideas, who can do this well? And the second group he turns to is managers. And managers are almost as bad. In some cases, they're worse. But they're bad for the opposite reason. They are too negative on novel ideas. And they commit a ton of false negatives, rejecting really promising ideas. Now, managers have done this pretty much as long as we've ever had ideas in the world. I spent a lot of time digging into the history of Seinfeld to try to figure out why every single executive at NBC shot that show down. And it took a guy, Rick Ludwin, who didn't even work in sitcoms, he came from Variety and Specials, to say, you know, I realize that this show makes no sense and it's really about nothing. The plot lines never get resolved and you can't identify with any one of the characters. But this made me laugh and that's what a sitcom is supposed to do. The managers, on the other hand, were much more likely to take novel ideas and compare them to a template of what's worked in the past. And so they would say, look, this is what our, a formula for a successful sitcom looks like. Seinfeld violates that. Therefore, we should not give it a chance. And they had intuition built up from years of experience. And the danger of intuition is if the past doesn't resemble the present and the future, then the lessons of experience actually lead you astray. Right? So all of that experience they built up about what made for a successful show actually made them biased against the novelty that actually made Seinfeld great. Now, it wasn't just intuition and comparing past ideas to current ideas that made these managers so bad. It was also incentives. If you are a manager, if you commit a false positive, you are going to embarrass yourself and potentially ruin your career. And just to bring this to life, I want you to look around the room for a second. I want you to try to spot the most paranoid person here. And then I want you to point at that person for me. <laughs> Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Now, for those of you who are tempted to point at yourselves, this is what a lot of managers do. Right? They are terrified of committing a false positive. The false negatives, on the other hand, if you reject a good idea, most of the time, no one will ever know. So incentives are very skewed. Right? It's easy to bet on ideas that are safe. And managers were afraid to take risks on the most novel. So Justin got these results. And I asked him, well, if, if people can't judge their own ideas, and managers can't judge new ideas either, who does? And Justin came up with a great insight. He had a third group, which was peers, fellow creators, circus artists judging each other's videos. And they were the best forecasters by far. Because unlike the artists themselves, the peers could take a step back and say, you know that act with clowns? Well, no one likes clowns. Don't do that. And that's not a joke. That's an empirical fact. Clowns are universally hated in the data. 
No one ever liked a clown act. But unlike managers, the peers were also really invested in the creative process. And they were able to say, you know, I know this looks like nothing I've ever seen before. And it's kind of out there, but I think we should give it a shot and see if it could take off. And so the peers were the, the best ones by far to take the risks on novel ideas. And that is what originals do. Right? They say, this idea is novel. I can't put it in a box. And that's exactly why we should give it a chance. One lesson from that is maybe we should take leaders and managers out of the gatekeeping process and say, you know what? Fellow creative artists should be responsible for judging ideas, not just generating them, but evaluating them and selecting them. And that would be a way to leverage the wisdom of crowds, because we talk a lot about the wisdom of crowds. It turns out not all crowds are equally wise. And so we need to think about who actually understands creativity before we put responsibility for judging ideas in the hands of certain people. But I want to go further. I want to help leaders and managers become less ineffective at judging new ideas. And Justin figured out a way to do this. Now, I should say, Justin's intelligence has dropped uh, precipitously in the last few years because he recently joined the Stanford faculty. Um, but while he was still at Wharton, what he discovered was that if you took a bunch of managers and gave them a five-minute activity, you could make them every bit as good as creative peers at judging which ideas would take off. All he did was he asked managers to spend five minutes brainstorming about their own ideas before they judged other people's ideas. And that was enough to open their minds. Because when they came in to select ideas, they were looking for reasons to say no. Get them into a brainstorming mindset first. Now they're not thinking evaluatively. Right? They're thinking creatively. And they're much more likely to say, what are reasons that I should consider this idea, as opposed to why should I walk away from it? So I'd love to see a rule every time we, we look at new ideas. Before we evaluate other people's ideas, we should brainstorm about our own. Now, you have to be careful, though. Right? If you brainstorm about ideas in that domain, you might end up just thinking your own ideas are great, and then you don't end up actually considering anyone else's. So the best version of this exercise is you brainstorm about something completely different before you go and vet other people's ideas. And that, I think, would be a pretty exciting step. Now, once you get good at idea selection, the next challenge is really to communicate them and get people to appreciate your original ideas. And this is where a lot of creativity goes to die. To illustrate this, I want to ask you to do a quick exercise. I'd like you to think of a song, any song that you know, and I want you to tap the rhythm to that song on the chair next to you. You can use your phone or your leg if you prefer. So you're going to go like this, try to tap the rhythm. The person next to you is going to try to guess the song. <laughs> You've got 30 seconds. I wish you good luck. You're going to need it. Audience members laugh and take their best guesses over the course of Grant's instructed 30 seconds. Then, he draws their attention back to the stage. Some of you had far too much fun with this exercise. What I think is fascinating about this is to find out how many of you could actually guess each other's songs. So what I'd like you to do is stand up if you guessed it correctly for a round of applause. Wait, I'm not done with you yet. Stay on your feet, please. If you guessed right, stand up again. And you have to stay standing until I name your song. <laughs> All right, happy birthday, sit down. Row, row, row your boat. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. ABCs. Anyone do Darth Vader's Imperial March? All right, so look, as fun as this is, what I love about this exercise is this was a real study done years ago. And before people tapped their song, they had a chance to estimate the likelihood that somebody else would recognize it. 
And here's where things get, get interesting. On average, people think that the guessing rate is going to be 50%. Right? You can choose any song. So most people pick an easy one, like a children's nursery rhyme. And they're like, all right, one out of every two people will get it. And then you actually look at the correct guessing rate, and it's only 2.5% of people who get it right. So you thought it was going to be 1 in 2, but it was only 1 in 40. Why are the tappers so overconfident? Well, I got a clue into this a few years ago. I was speaking to a leadership team at JP Morgan, and I made the mistake of having them actually do the, the probability estimates before they tapped. And I heard a voice shout out, 100%. <laughs> and I'm thinking, first of all, nothing is ever 100%. And then I look over, and it's Jamie Dimon. And he ends up tapping the song, and the guy next to him gets it right, which is good for all of us. <laughs> but most of the time, when people give high estimates, they are overconfident. Why? I think you already know the answer. Because when you're tapping your song, it's impossible to do it without hearing the tune in your head. I dare you to try it. You can't do it. That makes it also impossible to imagine what your disjointed tapping sounds like to someone who is not hearing the tune in your head. Right, so I'm hearing da 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 da, and you're hearing, what the hell is that? <laughs> I think this is a great metaphor for what happens when we bring original ideas to the table. When you pitch a new idea, you are not only hearing the tune in your head, you wrote the song. You have spent days, weeks, maybe years thinking about this idea. It makes perfect sense to you. And that makes it really tough to predict how it's going to sound to somebody who's never heard it before. The data actually suggests that it takes 10 to 20 exposures to a new idea before other people fully appreciate it. So next time you bring an idea that other people don't get, just come back six minutes later and say, here it is again. No, of course not. <laughs> what you want to do is master the art of repetition, which is all about making the unfamiliar feel familiar. My favorite example of this happened at Disney years ago. They decided that they wanted to make their first animated film based on an original script. So instead of you know, borrowing a time-honored fairy tale, they're going to write something from scratch. And they write a bunch of drafts. They all get scrapped. Finally, they're in a big pitch meeting. And Jeffrey Katzenberg says, this is a B movie. We'll be lucky if we make 50 grand on it. Michael Eisner wants to save it. So he calls out, well, do you think you can make this into King Lear? And one of the screenwriters, coincidentally, has reread King Lear three weeks earlier. Because that's what you have to do when you work at Disney. You read Shakespeare. And isn't able to connect the dots. But that actually sparks an idea for a producer in the room. And she says, wait, no, this is Hamlet. And in that moment, the movie ends up getting the green light, becomes the most successful film of 1994. Some of you have probably seen it. It's called The Lion King. I did not realize that The Lion King was based in part on Hamlet. But what's remarkable about this story is the original pitch for The Lion King, I quote, was Bambi in Africa with lions. <laughs> Think about that for a second. You hear that pitch, Bambi in Africa with lions, and you've got to be thinking, like, I have no idea what that movie is going to be about, and I am terrified for Bambi. <laughs> when you reframe it to Hamlet with lions, now it clicks. And you start to think, oh, of course, the, the uncle's going to kill the father. And then the son's going to have to avenge it. And now you can imagine the plot and the characters. And that's what I mean when I say make the unfamiliar familiar. You have to take your idea, the more original it is, and figure out how is it like something that people already get. And then connect those dots so you build a bridge, and it's a lot easier for them to grasp 
your novel concept. I have a lot of students coming into office hours pitching startup ideas. And about seven years ago, one of them came in and said, I want to sell glasses online. Do you want to invest? And I thought, who would ever order glasses online? You have to try them on, and you have to get your prescription tested. And I declined. And today, Warby Parker is worth over a billion dollars, and my wife is really pissed at me. <laughs> but I wish I had paid more attention to something they said in their pitch, which was they said, we want to do for glasses what Zappos did for shoes. And if I had stopped to think about that, if I had gotten over the fact that I've never worn glasses and I don't really understand them to begin with, I might have thought, you know, I didn't used to think about ordering shoes online, but now I do that all the time. And then a couple months later, GQ called them the Netflix for eyewear, and that was another familiarity infusion, where people were able to say, like, hey, I used to drive to Blockbuster, and now I don't, and so maybe this could happen too. So every time you have an original idea, right, your challenge is to fill in that blank and ask, what's the metaphor, what's the similar concept from a different domain that will help people grasp what I'm trying to do? All right, the third thing I learned about originals was that the most important role they play in organizations, in teams, in communities is that they don't just generate their own novel ideas. They actually unleash originality in others. I spend a lot of time working with organizations, and the most frequent question I get by far from leaders is, how do I fight groupthink? How do I get people to stop jumping on the bandwagon of what the majority prefers, what's popular, and instead get people to bring real dissent and diversity of thought to the table? So as I go to different organizations, I'm always intrigued by what leaders are doing that shuts this down. When I think about leaders who shut down originality, a lot of it is unintentional. There's one sentence that drives me crazy more than any other. And I bet you've had a boss at some point in your career who has said this sentence. Think about it for a moment. Fill in the blanks. I'm going to ask you all to do it out loud in a second. All right, ready? The sentence across the screen at the front of the room reads, don't bring me, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. Now, I understand the logic behind this sentence. Right? You want people to be efficient. You want them to not just be complaining and whining, but actually contributing. And I think it's reasonable for any leader to say, look, if you are going to point out that the emperor has no clothes, you should probably invest some time in becoming a tailor, too. But there's a big issue with this sentence, which is if you can only bring solutions to the table, then you're going to create a culture of advocacy, not one of inquiry. People can only speak up after they've already figured out what to do with the problem. <clears throat> that means most of the time, your hardest problems will never get voiced, the ones that nobody knows how to fix where people would love to say, you know, I see this big challenge. Does anybody have ideas about what to do about it? You can't do that in a solution-focused culture. So I'd love to see organizations say, look, we actually want to make it safe for people to bring problems to the table. I had a really interesting conversation a couple months ago with Elon Musk about the complacency that led to some of the errors that they've had at SpaceX. And I asked him what he was doing to make sure that people would really speak up about every single flaw that they saw, because in one case, the major issue that caused one of their Falcon 1 launches uh, to explode was number 11 on a priority list of major problems, and he asked for the top 10 problems. <laughs> a little painful, never wants to see that happen again. So now his goal is to make it unsafe not to speak up. And imagine how different that is from a typical organization. The most extreme example of this that I've seen in a company is at Bridgewater, for those of you who are familiar with them. For those who aren't, it's a hedge fund that's done pretty well. They've made more money in the last 40 years than any other company in their industry. 
They also, in 2007, warned their clients about an impending financial crisis. Not bad. And one of the things that, that they've done is they've tried to create a culture of radical transparency and idea meritocracy, which means that nobody has the right to hold a critical opinion without speaking up about it. And then instead of making decisions based on democracy, where everyone has one vote, or hierarchy, where the people in leadership roles dictate everything, they actually want a meritocracy where the best ideas win. Now, they have some pretty unconventional practices to create that kind of transparency, one of which is they videotape or audiotape every single meeting that happens at the company. And that way, nobody ever says things behind closed doors that won't get shared publicly. So if you're ever caught talking behind somebody's back, you'll be accused of backstabbing them, and then you'll be marched right in front of them to front stab them instead. <laughs> this is not going to work for every organization or every culture. But it has allowed them to do something really interesting, which is to really create a culture where voice is, is a necessity. And part of how you get evaluated and how you get promoted is whether you are speaking up and challenging other people. So the culture was tested a few years ago. There's this guy that um, today I'm going to call Jim, because that's his name, <laughs> who sends an email. He's three levels below Ray Dalio, the founder, that says, I'm just going to paraphrase, Dear Ray, that big client meeting we were in recently, I give you a D minus for your performance. You rambled incoherently for well over an hour. This was a huge deal, and I think you blew it. And he goes on for well over a page like that. I don't know about you, but I don't know a lot of people who'd send that email to the billionaire founder of their company. <laughs> I was pretty sure Ray was going to fire the guy. But Ray's response is really telling. He writes back, and he says, I'm sorry I let you down. Then he copies the entire management committee of the firm and asks them to go and investigate the whole history of tapes and figure out whether this is a pattern so he can learn from his mistakes and avoid it again. Now, that kind of action speaks so much louder than words that words are irrelevant at that point. But it doesn't stop there. Then the co-CEO actually copies the entire email trail to the whole company so everyone can learn from the exchange. When you look at randomized controlled experiments on this kind of leader behavior, admitting mistakes, being open to criticism, you see it has two effects. One is that people now feel like it's safe to speak up, and you get a lot more voice. And two is every other manager in the organization now feels responsibility to really listen and try to learn and improve. So an extreme example, but I think a compelling one. How can you create a culture more like that in your own workplace? My favorite answer to that question is an exercise called Kill the Company. I was working with a pharmaceutical company a few years ago. CEO got really frustrated. And he's like, look, we need to shake things up. We need innovation. So he brought in his leadership team, and he asked them to spend an hour imagining they were a major competitor and brainstorming about how to put their company out of business. And I have never seen a more energized group of executives in my life. <laughs> right? One scientist was like, I've been waiting 27 years to destroy this company. But after the brainstorming exercise about how to kill the company, they had to turn around and say, look, a lot of our competitors are considering these ideas already. Right? And some of them are threats. Some of them are opportunities. Let's figure out what we're going to do with them. What I love about this exercise is that it puts you on offense instead of defense. And we know that people are much more original when they're thinking offensively than when they're thinking defensively. On defense, you're risk averse. You're cautious. You're looking for every single potential threat, and then you're just trying to play it as safe as possible. Whereas on offense, you're going to think about things you never would have considered otherwise. And then you're really going to give them a serious shot. And so I think this is an exercise that everybody should do. Right? Save the company doesn't work so well. Kill the company does. 
And you spend some time doing that, and you, feel, you find out that a lot of people actually have some major concerns, major problems, or real ideas. And now they feel like it's their job to bring them to the table, because they're actually going to gain status from trying to destroy their own company. Um, you have to make sure that exercise did not last for an hour, though. Otherwise, they go into competition with you. But that's a separate question. All right. The fourth thing that I found really interesting was every original needs allies. If you're going to bring an idea or a suggestion, you want to go to the right people. And those right people are not always who you think they are. I always thought that the people who would most support us are the ones who share our goals. People with the same values, the same ends, the same visions. And yet, the data show that oftentimes common goals drive people apart instead of bringing them together. My favorite example of this is actually a study of vegans. So I'm just going to say, some of you might be a little upset by this, knowing that we're in Aspen. But there is clear evidence that vegans hate vegetarians even more than meat eaters. <laughs> Freud had a name for this. He called it the narcissism of small differences. <laughs> so what happens is extreme groups often look down their noses at more mainstream groups. They, they think of them as sellouts. Right, so if you're a vegan, at least meat eaters are consistent in their principles, whereas vegetarians, what do they actually stand for? So you have to be thoughtful about who you go to when you have ideas. And the first place that I started on this was thinking something that I've been studying my whole career is a big factor here. I've been studying the differences between givers and takers. Givers are the people who, by default, are generous. They enjoy sharing their knowledge. They like to mentor other people. And they want to be helpful. They're constantly asking, what can I do for you? Takers are the opposite. It's all about what's in it for me. They volunteer for projects that are interesting, visible, and important. But then they dump the grunt work on everybody else. And somehow they walk away with the lion's share of credit for collective achievements. Most takers don't mean to be cruel or cutthroat. They just say, look, the world is a dog-eat-dog, -dog, competitive place. If I don't put myself first, no one else will. There is a third kind of taker we won't be talking about this morning. That's called a psychopath. <laughs> but the other two kinds of takers, the narcissists, the recovering givers, we could actually change the way they inter interact. That might be something to talk about in the Q&A. But my assumption was simple. If you have a new idea, you want to go to a giver, not a taker. And that's right. The givers will try to make your idea better and help you succeed. The takers will either steal it or try to make sure that it doesn't threaten their success. The challenge is figuring out who's a giver and who's a taker. And this is where we often end up making big mistakes. There's a personality trait that throws us off. It's called agreeableness. Agreeable people are warm, friendly, polite, welcoming, nice people. Disagreeable people, more critical, skeptical, challenging, and far more likely than the rest of us to work as lawyers. That is not a joke, actually. That's right out of the data. Uh, not only are disagreeable people more likely to become lawyers, but it is the only known profession where extreme disagreeableness is just a sheer advantage. So I always assumed that agreeable people were givers and disagreeable people were takers. But in fact, when I gathered data, the correlation between those traits was zero. There's no correspondence. Because agreeableness is your outer veneer. How pleasant is it to interact with you? Whereas giving and taking, those are your inner motives. What are your intentions toward others? So if you really want to judge people accurately, you've got to draw the two by two. And when you do that, you'll find that there are two combinations that you recognize instantly and two that you overlook. 
The agreeable givers, those people are incredibly easy to spot. They say yes to everything. They bend over backward to try to please other people, and they are at the greatest risk for becoming pushovers and doormats at the hands of takers. The other combination, the disagreeable taker, you know those people right away too, although you may call them by a slightly different name. And my guess is you don't waste a lot of time on them. The other two are the ones that we forget about. There are disagreeable givers in our lives. They are the people who are gruff and tough on the surface, but underneath have other people's best interests at heart. Now, for those of you who are having a hard time thinking of a disagreeable giver, there was a programmer at Google who said, ah, that's like somebody with a bad user interface, but a great operating system, <laughs> if that helps you. <laughs> but disagreeable givers are the most undervalued people in our lives by far because they're the ones who give the critical feedback that no one wants to hear but everyone needs to hear. They are constantly challenging the status quo, representing unpopular minority views. And I think we need to do a much better job appreciating these people as opposed to saying, eh, kind of prickly, must be a selfish taker. Now, when you're, you're looking at givers, most of us, when we have a new idea, we go to the agreeable givers rather than the disagreeable ones. And that's where we go wrong because we expect that agreeable givers will be our supporters, and they are in that interaction. But agreeable people hate conflict, and they are reluctant to upset the apple cart and champion our ideas and become our advocates. And so they basically end up nodding, smiling, and cheerleading face-to-face -face with us, and then doing absolutely nothing to help our ideas come to life. Disagreeable givers, on the other hand, when you bring them a new idea, they will tear it apart in the service of making it better. And then if you can get them excited about the idea, they will run through walls for you. There's a great study on this that actually looks at people's happiness over the course of a few weeks. So you get a text message, and it asks you, how happy are you in this moment, and what are you doing right now? And if you're highly disagreeable, the data show, you actually experience more joy in an argument than a friendly conversation. <laughs> right? So next time you have an idea, the best thing you can do is find the most disagreeable giver you know who will say, this is a great opportunity to prove everyone in the world wrong in service of something that really matters. Now, the last combination is the deadly one, the agreeable taker, also known as the faker. This is the person who's nice to your face and then stabs you in the back. <laughs> and I should say, there's one country on Earth that has a harder time spotting these people than any other, because it's the most agreeable country on the planet. Anyone know what that is? Who said Canada? It is, in fact, Canada. Before I go further, Canadians in the room, please raise your hands. OK, so statistically, you should not be offended by this because you're highly agreeable, right? All right. Now, of course, there's variation within countries, but Canada does consistently score at the very top of the agreeableness spectrum on average. And there was a radio station in Toronto a while back that actually anticipated this. They said, look, we don't have enough national pride. We need more Canadian slogans. So they held a national contest. Let's come up with a Canadian equivalent of as American as apple pie. As Canadian as maple syrup. Yeah, I thought so too, growing up in Michigan right near the Canadian border where we actually drove south to get to Canada. Maple syrup seemed like a natural candidate, ice hockey too. But no, the winning entry was the best demonstration of Canadian agreeableness that you will ever find. I kid you not, four million Canadians voted for their national slogan to be, 
as Canadian as possible under the circumstances. <laughs> For those of you who are highly agreeable or slightly Canadian, you get this right away. How could I ever say I'm any one thing when I'm constantly adapting to try to please other people? And if that's you, it's well to remember that just because someone is nice to you does not mean that they actually care about you. And I wish I had known that 15 years ago when I went into my boss's boss's office because she was a highly agreeable taker and I had missed all of the warning signs. I wanna talk for a minute about what those warning signs are. All right, so how do you spot an agreeable taker before it's too late? A couple patterns to look for. One is agreeable takers are great at kissing up and kicking down. They are great fakers when dealing with powerful people because they know that's how they get ahead. But then they learn it's a lot of work to pretend to care about everybody. And they tend to let their guard down with peers and subordinates who see their true colors. That means it's a red flag if somebody has a great reputation upward and a more mixed one lateral and downward. And there's an interview question that I love that comes from Alex Gorski, who runs Johnson & Johnson. At the very end of his interviews for senior leaders, he often asks, can you give me the name of four people whose careers you have fundamentally improved? And takers will often respond to that by saying, here are four people above me in the hierarchy who I have helped elevate to greater heights. The giver response is much more likely to be, I don't know if I've fundamentally improved anybody's life, but here are the four people I've worked the hardest to develop and mentor and I hope they would say I added some value. My favorite way to catch an agreeable taker, though, is to ask a question like this. Let's take a taking behavior like theft, stealing from your company, and we'll define that to include cash, intellectual property, materials, merchandise. The question is, what's the theft rate in the United States? So what percent of people steal at least $10 US a month from their employers? 30, keep shouting. Two. Two? It's oddly specific, but thank you. 70, but the data do show the higher your estimate that other people are thieves, the greater the chances that you are a thief. <laughs> if you're sitting near someone with an 80% or higher estimate, I would check your wallet right now. <laughs> now, there are lots of ways you could give a high estimate and not be a taker. One way is you might have worked with a bunch of thieves in the past. Another is it's your job to catch thieves. But what's interesting is when people answer a question like this, to predict others' behavior, they start by asking themselves, what would I do? Or what have I done? And then they project. So I'll just caricature this. Extreme taker answering this question. Uh, let's see, what percent of people steal $10 a month? Takers always talk that way. <laughs> uh, last week I stole $377. I'm assuming 10 a month has got to be common. 94%. Whereas an extreme giver answering the same question. How do you even steal $10 from a company? <laughs> How many pens do you have to take home? It's about 70, but what kind of person would do such a thing? 6%. Notice how the giver sounds exactly like me. <laughs> These differences play out in large samples. Takers anticipate more selfish behavior from others, and that's part of how they justify and rationalize being a taker. It's not me. All of you people are selfish jerks, and I'm just being smart, cautious, and self-protective. So if you ever want to figure out whether someone's a taker, pick the taking behavior you are most worried about. It might be knowledge hoarding instead of sharing. It could be stealing credit for other people's ideas. And ask how common people think that behavior is, and then ask them, how did you come up with that estimate? And there are lots of high estimates that are reasonable. 
When takers reveal themselves is when they say, you know, at the end of the day, I think most people are fundamentally selfish. What they don't realize is they're giving you a pretty good look in the mirror when they say that. Now, of course, you want disagreeable givers in your organization, but it's even more important to weed out the agreeable takers because the negative impact of a taker on a culture is typically double to triple the positive impact of a giver. Think about it this way. One bad apple can spoil a barrel, but one good egg just does not make a dozen. I don't know what that means, <laughs> but I hope you do. No, you let even one taker into a team and paranoia starts to spread. People are watching their backs, worrying that somebody is out to get them. Whereas you put one giver in a team and you don't get an explosion of generosity. More often people are like, great, you can do all my work. So who you hire, who you put in a group, who you marry is not about bringing in the givers as much as it is weeding out the takers. The most important thing I've learned about being original is, especially for parents, if you want to raise creative children, you've got to put values above rules. If you look at high school students and you ask teachers who are the most creative students in your school and you compare them to the rest of the students, you will find on average ordinary students had typically six major rules in their household growing up. The creative children had less than one rule on average. So create like two-thirds of a rule and your work as a parent is done. Now, of course, you're going to have rules, right? But when you have rules, kids are much more likely to internalize them when you actually explain the why behind them and say, look, this rule has a principle that matters deeply to us. And I was reading this research right when our two daughters were, they were about seven to five, and they're running around our family room about to trample our at that time, baby son. And I'm really worried that somebody is going to get injured. And I hear this alien voice come out of, of my mouth that I've never heard before, which was, no roll, no running in the house. <laughs> and the great thing about being a psychologist is that every day you get to confront your own hypocrisy. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm not doing any of what this research says. So the whole point of, of tying rules to values is then instead of just following rules and conforming to authority, kids actually develop principles for themselves. And they think for themselves. And they're much more likely then when they're confronted with something they disagree with or don't believe in to challenge it. And so I start thinking, OK, I've got to do something. So I, I sit down with our oldest daughter, Joanna. And I say, Joanna, why is it dangerous to run in the house? And she says, well, we could hurt our little brother. And I ask, well, do you want to hurt him? No, no, I don't. OK, well, what do we need to do? Now, at that point, I'm creating a monster, because Joanna then not only makes sure that she's not running the rest of the day, she also practically locks her younger sister in a chokehold to make sure that she won't do it either uh, and becomes the enforcer of rules. But I think this is such an important question to reflect on, right? Am I doing a good job enforcing my rules with values behind them? And the easiest way to make sure that your kids are learning values is to think about the way that you praise them. I know you've all been exposed to Carol Dweck's work on the importance of growth mindsets, praising behavior and effort, as opposed to ability or intelligence. In the domain of character, this works a little bit different. So I always thought if I wanted to raise a kid to be an original or a giver, what I should do is wait until they engaged in the right behavior, and then swoop in and say, wow, you know, that was really nice, or wow, that was a really creative drawing. But the evidence actually suggests that in this domain, instead of praising the behavior, it's better to praise the person behind the behavior. 
So what I should have been saying all this time is not, wow, that was really helpful, but instead, wow, you are really helpful. Not thank you for giving, but instead thank you for being a giver. And what's neat about that is that actually helps children internalize values as part of their identity. So the next time they have a chance to do this behavior again, they think about that as fundamental to who they are, and they're more likely to repeat it. This, by the way, works for bad behavior too. So if you want kids not to cheat, instead of saying don't cheat, you say don't be a cheater. And now the behavior casts a shadow. Right? I can cheat and still be a good person. But when you say don't be a cheater, now I actually have to make sure that my behavior is in line with my standards and my moral principles. Of course, you have to worry a little bit about kids misbehaving. And there, there's an emotion that, that works for parents better than any other, which is disappointment. Disappointment is this great statement that says, I had such high expectations of you, and you fell so far short of them that I hardly ever want to see you again. But I believe you could do better next time. And disappointment seems to work because it forces kids to feel the emotion that's more moral than any other, guilt. Irma Bombeck put it best, guilt is the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> and it's actually true, right? When you express disappointment, kids are much more likely to feel guilty about the wrongs that they've done and try to repair their behavior in the past and improve it in the future. And I think disappointment for bad behavior coupled with character praise for good behavior is the best way to raise kids to be giving but also to be original, right? Instead of, wow, that was creative artwork, wow, you are creative. Instead of, you know, you don't have to follow the crowd and be a sheep. You are a nonconformist. And my parents understood this intuitively. Growing up, my mother always said no matter what grades I would get, as long as I tried my hardest, she would be proud of me. And then she would add, but if you didn't get an A, I'll know you didn't try your hardest. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. So look, I have a simple goal. I want to create a world with more originals, where our households, our schools, our families are dominated by creative thinking, by people speaking up. And the easiest way to do that is to bring in more givers and weed out the takers. Adam Grant is a professor of management and psychology at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. He has consulted clients like Google, Goldman Sachs, and Teach for America. And he's written two books, Originals and Give and Take. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and myself and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.